Welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Robbie Straczynski. Thanks so much for joining us on episode number 60 of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. Today's guest is best known to most of us in the poker world as one of the great broadcasters of the game. But he's so much more than that. He's also a great poker player, though you wouldn't know it by looking at his hand in mod page because he is a cash game and mixed game specialist. Broadcasting and poker have taken him all around the world where he has experienced a wide array of extremely cool things. The man likes fast cars, private jets, and feeding pandas. Alina Jad, welcome to the Cards Chat Podcast. Thanks so much, Robbie. Obviously, you visited my Instagram page. During that uh, construction of that intro, we do our research. Yes, <laughs> indeed. How you doing? I'm good. Tired a little bit. It's been a long series, obviously, but uh, I know how diligent. It, for those who are fans of of the podcast, understand that this man works tirelessly to put this thing together. So I hope that uh, the debt of gratitude is being paid because uh, I am not easy to lock down, and he is between Israel and Vegas. I think this is your second trip out yep. and uh, made it a point on multiple occasions, despite me being up to my eyeballs and in, in, you know, commentary and other outside endeavors and not being able to get around to texts and, and, you know, emails as quickly as I would have otherwise liked. He pinned me down and, uh, you know, I'm happy that he did. Wow. Goodness. The check is in the mail. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> you're very sweet. But uh, yes, uh, for those who are listening, I don't know when you're listening. Maybe it's a year from when we're recording this. Uh, this is one of the day one CDD of the main event 2021. Uh, Ali just finished uh, many hours of commentary. So uh, I'm appreciative that he joined us today. And we all should be too. He's uh, perhaps one of the more elusive interviews in poker. Uh, and we're very, very grateful that he's here. So Ali, we know you as one of the great broadcasting voices in the poker world, but of course, you're much, much more than that and have been for a long time. So what first led you into broadcasting? Um, believe it or not, I was in high school and it was as simple as I, I was a part of the video yearbook production uh, as like a class, a course that I had taken, an elective. And that led me to start doing play-by-play -play commentary for our girls volleyball team, which was very, very good. Um, and a little bit for our football team. That kind of gave me a little taste for it. And we had a job board, like a literal physical bulletin board in the hallway outside of the principal's office where different employment opportunities for young people would be posted. And I guess unbeknownst to me, because I never looked at it, one of my friends pointed out that there was a, a posting for a local show, locally produced show on the NBC affiliate mm -hmm. to be a host. And I mean, you can imagine at the ripe old age of 17, this was like, yeah, I'm going to be a local celebrity. Yeah. Not that that was why I did it. My friends just said, you should just go out, you know? And I was like, okay, I had zero expectations. I was being pompous when I said, yeah, watch guys, I'm going to get this. <laughs> and hundreds of kids, teenagers from around the, the San Francisco Bay area came out, whittle down, whittle down, and whittle down, callback after callback after callback. It was between me and one other guy. And uh, suddenly I found myself chosen to be the host of the show, which was called First Cut, spun off eventually into a show called Hypertech. I hosted it for some time with a young lady by the name of Sujin Pak, who had come over from Channel One News, eventually landed at MTV for some time and um, really just marked the entry into the business. And it was a bit of a trial by fire because I was under the impression I could just show up and be the gregarious, extroverted goofball that I kind of am. and. I was working in a 
professional newsroom, basically, as all affiliate channels are, they center around their newsroom. And uh, I kind of had to grow up a little faster, you know, than I, I would have imagined. Um, but I never lost my youthful spirit. Uh, but, it, you know, it was like, learn how to work with adults time. Right. Um, you know, not that I've mastered that art uh, all these years later. Um, and it, yeah, it's taken me to some really remarkably great places, but that's how it all got started. Okay. So that's, that's broadcasting in general. And then at some point poker came into play and I believe there was a party poker cruise involved. That's the one for sure. Um, so I was going to UC Berkeley. I left Berkeley. I started playing poker and befriended Pilot Friedman and Eric Lindgren. They both took me under their their wings as far as uh, you know, teaching me to play limit hold'em. I was just a super small stake stud player prior to that. And uh, when online came around, obviously it was like kerosene on, on poker. And uh, Eric was a real crusher for a while, as was Pilot. <laughs> and he had qualified for the Party Poker Millions cruise and had uh, two seats. And I guess at the time you were able to just give one away, and, and he gave one to me. I was cabin mate. And it was the year that both he and Daniel Negreanu ended up heads up for the title. It was a World Poker Tour event. And kind of having a hunch that my ambitions to get involved in poker as somebody who kind of had the intersection of relationships, wherewithal, and actual acumen with respect to the game, and also somebody who had accolades in in television, um, you know, that I could maybe weasel my way into into some sort of gig. Mm -hmm. I brought my resume reel, my resume my headshots and i was sitting in a 75 150 limit hold'em game with maury escondani who i didn't know at all and i heard him you know all the tall tales that get told over tables and he's talking about how he's going to be a producer you know i'm like race so he uh he he ends up you know sounding kind of serious about it and in turn i'm telling him well i am a professional television host of several years and have accolades and you know i've got my resume reel and this and that and he's thinking yeah right now uh-huh, right well we ended up you know in his room where he had a tv and, and a vcr and popped in my my demo reel and he looks over at me kind of incredulously and says you're the guy i've been looking for wow. and i was like at your service and it began what has since been a, a two decades long relationship where uh-huh. he's been tremendously loyal and i am incredibly thankful to him for sticking by me through all of the shenanigans and all of the missteps and, you know, all of the moments where he could have gone a different direction, but Mm -hmm. always had my back and, and, uh, helped to work me from just standing on my feet on the world's hardest cement floor with no cushion and dress shoes to the point where my very first gig poker superstars invitational at the Morongo casino in California, I was so mangled at the end of every night, which the structure was just awful. It went on way too long. It was like 17 hours of holding a mic, which seems like an innocent act, but your one arm is going to end up lower than the other if you're holding something like that for yes. 17 hours. My feet and dress shoes. I mean, I was wrecked. And Maury was like, I want you to spend the first hour after you wake up in a massage table. I'm going to have your feet massaged. I mean, just like little things like that. The guy right. is so sweet. And wow. uh, worked my way from that to wherever it is that I am now. That's you know, unreal. Wow. Yeah. Out of curiosity, I mean, I know both uh, yourself and Maury uh, are from uh, Iran. Mm-hmm. Did that well conversation? Thank you, thank you. Uh, I th- was that conversation in his room. Did that take place in your native language or in English? Just out of curiosity, because like, is that something that perhaps drew you together I'm, from the start? I'm fairly certain that it was in English, and obviously there would be tremendous temptation to presume that there was an epistic appointment no, there, right? No. no, I mean, let's be honest. There's, there's always, you know, we look out for our people, you sure. know, stuff like that. Sure, but. Uh, 
I, I've never felt, and maybe this is just my own, you know, bias because I would be so uncomfortable to think that it had <laughs> anything to do with nepotism. But we'll have to ask him on another episode if you haven't already. Yeah. But uh, I've never felt the sense that, you know, it was because you're Persian or because, mm. you know, you play limit hold'em or because, whatever <laughs> it may be, that the opportunities were granted, and uh, and I'm thankful for that because obviously that would create a lot of insecurity. Sure. sure. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I'm pretty sure that it was in English. Well, we speak in Farsi from time to time, and he mocks me because I was born here. Uh, he <laughs> suggests that I don't have a good accent or. You know, my vocabulary is bad. Recently, I actually had to call my mom because I was so insistent that the word for Blackberry was a certain word. Uh And he looked at me and just laughed and was like, that's not the word for it. To the point where I was like, listen, man, I grew up in a household (laughs) where that was the word for Blackberry. And he actually corrected my mother 30, 40 years after I, like, my whole world was shattered. I'm like, mom, what? What is going on? Well, Ali, let me tell you. Tell me, Robbie. The word for Blackberry. What is it? I don't know. But, but what, what about in he for <laughs> must know it in here? Uhmania. Uhmania. You don't think you know. Don't be bashful. Tell me the truth. It's not such a bad I don't accent. work for Indian intelligence. I'm not looking to somehow exploit the word for Blackberry to involve myself in some political conflict. You I know just... what you know what is great? This podcast, it has a subtitle. In Hebrew, in Hebrew, in English, and in Farsi. I could get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Oh, I, I think we're going off. You want to cut it off? <laughs> okay. Um, I imagine that many people may not know that you have had plenty gigs outside the poker. Of course, we all know you from all of your poker gigs. You used to be on HLN, uh, ESPN, others. Can you give us perhaps an idea of some of like the cool stuff or highlights that you've done outside of poker that folks may not be aware of? Um, most recently, the two gigs that you mentioned, uh, I did a branded content integration for Guinness called um, uh, the Guinness Suite, I guess. And uh, it, it was on SportsCenter on Wednesday nights. I did it out of the LA Bureau. I also hosted a college football show called Road Trip mm-hmm. on ESPNU. Most fun I've ever had in my career. It was wow. a couple of years of just complete magic for a sports fan um, and kid at heart, no less. Uh, it was like my own personal old school. You know, that movie wow. with Will Ferrell. I was oh, just like oh, back yeah. on campus, right? you know, with like-minded sophomoric people. You know, I was like, yeah, oh, that's great. Diving into, you know, the student section. Uh, and I'm a sicko college football fan. So that was amazing. I also um, did some fill-in work on a show called Unite. That was a panel that uh, was about roundtable stuff, college football. It happened out of Bristol, Connecticut. Um, then HLN actually sort of came about when I was pitching um, a travel show for lack of a better way to describe it, um, to them. And they were rebranding that whole network and its sensibility. And they said that we kind of want you to be the Anderson Cooper of HLN if it were. And I was like, well, time out. I'm not trying to do hard news. I'm not the guy. Way too goofy. I don't want to talk about terrorism and sad things. Mm. You know, news can be a little depressing. Mm. And, uh, you know, I took the job, which was turned into two jobs. I had to move to Atlanta, which I wasn't thrilled about. Uh, as a California kid, um, but I did a show called The Daily Share live uh, from noon to one Eastern um, out of the Atlanta Bureau uh, for HLN. And then I also had my show in primetime, which got nominated for Best Original Cable Series called The Social Life. Nice. Four episodes in. And uh, yeah, it was kind of a short-lived stint. They they bought me out of my contract a year later, and I think it became a little clear that our visions didn't align, mm-hmm. which is my very vanilla corporate way of describing it. Um, but what did I have to complain about? They right. paid me through my, my full Beautiful. second year. And 
it allowed me to basically travel the world. A lot of that Instagram stuff you see is uh -huh. the byproduct of what would I do if I got paid everything that I was going to get, but All didn't have to go to work and couldn't take another job. Uh -huh. Otherwise the gravy train would stop rolling. It's like, well, I travel the world and right. I did and I'm Very cool. super thankful. Uh, you know what, uh, folks, you know, if you're just listening and you're not watching the podcast, what you can't see perhaps is this you... amazing scarf right. that I've worn <laughs> during uh, an otherwise pretty hot fall day. <laughs> if you can see the floral design, touch that, Robbie. That's a, oh, wow. that's a real thread count. Very there. fine silk. It's the best. It's the best. <laughs> I'm sorry. You were saying, if you're not watching and you're listening. If you're just listening, you perhaps can hear it, but you can't see it, is the smile on this man's face. It is omnipresent and ever-present. And it's just so clear to me that you love what you do so much, whether it is in poker or not in poker. I just think that's really cool. I just love when someone clearly has and exudes that passion for what it is they do. Um, on the related note there, in the poker world, do you have any particularly favorite gigs that you know definitely bring that smile to your face once more when you when you reminisce about it? Poker Road Radio, back with Joe Seabach and Gavin Smith, rest in peace. Um, it goes back so far now. I'm going to say it's at least 13 years, mm -hmm. 14 years mm -hmm. since I was involved in that project. And at the time, I made more working one weekend for NBC than I did working an entire year for Poker Road Radio, <laughs> and I had to produce that show. I had to host that show. I had to write the show. I had to answer emails, voicemails, and participate in the forums. And it was a true labor of love, but I did it because it was so much fun to work with a couple of friends. It was a startup gig and, you know, we had equity and, and you know, we had lofty ambitions and dreams. And to this day, there are those who pull me aside and say something about how much fun they had listening to episodes of that show. And there are a few still floating around there somewhere <laughs> available for download because we have a a guy who goes by the sixth Wilbury, I think, on the two plus two forums, who um, uh, Mark Honbo is his name. And, and he was such a super fan of the show. And um, especially when Gavin passed not that long ago, he resurfaced to sort of say, hey, man, I've got a big archive of big trolls and this stuff that I don't even have. Um, and they did it available to those who want to go back and some of those ones. And it's weird to say because, you know, I think it just reinforces the notion that I hope everybody can kind of understand and grasp and appreciate that it isn't the money that will ultimately make you happy, but rather doing things that you enjoy and that are passionate because those things won't feel like work and ultimately your best work will follow hmm. and you don't feel like it's work. Um, you know, they say, I do what you love, you never work a day in your life. That's right. It does ring true. You know, yeah. really in it. And um, earlier today I was in a meeting and, and I'm not sure how we arrived upon it, but I, I briefly shared something which I've also shared on Kara Scott's podcast. Which we will be referencing later. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I talked about uh, how if I have any sort of humble little gift or privilege or virtue whereby I can bring laughter or joy to people's lives that are otherwise, let's face it, not all as fortunate or blessed as the ones that you and I and many of the people even out here listening might be leading. The, the struggle of just getting through a day, the rigors of, of figuring out where am I going to get something to eat or, you know, just deal with my boss all day in this cubicle or fluorescent light or whatever it may be. I can give them a half hour, an hour where they can just laugh and troubles them, troubles them. That's a big deal. Yeah, if I can, I can leave this place feeling like I left it better than I found it through that little platform. Um, and um, what I'm here to do. So it's Yikes. I mean, like, I just want to like replay. You guys should just replay and replay those last three minutes over and over again. It's like that's already the perfect place to stop. But I got so much more to add. It's oh yeah, let's keep going, no, it's just absolutely no, it's not at all. But it's just such a beautiful sentiment. Um, it just it just rings so true.
Um, I will pivot though, and I'll say, sure, you know, with you know, fifteen plus years uh, of experience, you know, we've all seen over the last few fifteen years, the game of poker has evolved, mm-hmm. right? People are better; they're studying; they're in the lab. I'm just asking. I'm wondering. You know, you've been broadcasting and behind the mic. Has the broadcasting game kind of evolved along with poker at all? Yeah, uh, actually, when when you and I popped over to to Remco and Donnie and what they were doing, they they touched on the idea that. It used to be a big highlight. It used to be just produced cut downs of all of the most exciting hands. And the evolution has certainly been the advent of the live stream, um, which really is, is a function of technology and RFID hand readers and a lot of the, the efforts of the folks who are behind the scenes to create the opportunity for us to call poker live, obviously on a delay because we have to protect the integrity of the game. And I think that is the biggest point of evolution that I've seen, you know, independent of obviously the evolution of the game itself with solvers right. and stuff like that. Right. But um, but yeah, the broadcast game has changed tremendously. And uh, you know, I for one am thankful for it because I love live. I don't want to experience it. I mm. don't like sitting there having it all canned. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done it, you know, but uh for me, yeah, I just like what excites me is that unpredictable thing. I have mm. no idea what's coming up next. I, I'm not staring at a hand breakdown right. where I have to pretend that I don't know this big turn card's coming. Mm-hmm. It, it removes the ability to be organic. And so you get more of an authentic rendition of us uh, in the same way in which everybody at home is experiencing right. Right, for the first time. Right. Interesting. Well, I, mean, I know besides the stuff that you're doing, the commentary on the WSOP main event and other stuff on Poker Go, perhaps what your best known for in the poker world is poker after dark mm. that's been a lot that's been around for quite a while during your broadcasting run um that show too has also kind of evolved from its first rendition to now the new poker go uh rendition of poker after duke yeah uh, after dark you know how, how has your role evolved if at all or are you just kind of like you know riding a bike and doing the same thing over again how do you feel about that um obviously the format is still just me yeah, in the booth yeah. for most of the episode. There's there's been a few occasions on which we brought others into the booth, so that's certainly a, a departure from the original run, um, which I cringe sometimes when I go back and I hear that we had so many cooks in the kitchen with differing opinions on how we wanted to establish that mm. show when it first came out, mm-hmm. and you know you can hear me really go in some different directions. Um, but you know, I it is riding a bike to an extent, right? And I don't say that from the standpoint of like. You know, ah, whatever it is, what it is. I, I still like getting in there and, and seeing new faces and seeing new themes that put mm. together different people. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I feel like that's old faithful, man. It's one of those, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I feel like a mm. lot of people really enjoyed it uh, way back when. I'm glad to see it come back. Um, the other one, obviously, High Stakes Poker is really the the one that I think is the most revered of all poker shows ever. But I don't know whether or not that magic could ever be captured the same way for two reasons. One is all those of us who have been around poker have now, I'm not going to say been jaded, but we are no longer the neophytes. We are no longer mm. doe-eyed and bushy-tailed when we watch poker in the way that we were back then. And obviously the game doesn't have sort of some of the opportunities for recklessness that Brad Booth brought us. Yes. Uh, you know, these days, those people <laughs> have since gone broke, I think. And the game has been solved and obviously is approached in a much more methodical, scientific mm-hmm. uh, way, which, you know, it's just different. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not worse. It's not better. It's just different. And it's a product of the evolution. And, you know, we appreciate it differently. It's it's a game that's matured. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know with respect to poker after dark i think it's a a show that's matured a a bit as well as i have nominally matured over that (laughs) decade plus span i promise you there's still fraudulence in my adulthood um but uh but yeah i mean it's 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 old faithful. It's, you know, a, a classic. A, a little bit of a tangent. I just have to say as a, an English major, you know, I got my bachelor's and master's degree in English. I have such an immense appreciation for not just the fact that you have the vocabulary, but you know how to use it. And it's just incredible. You're so beautifully expressive, uh, tremendous eloquence. So that's the tangent. And, uh, you know, really, it's it's not something you see every day, not something you hear every day. I botch it sometimes. Don't get it twisted. I've got, <laughs> I've got one guy who audits me, Skol Padal, on, uh, on Twitter. Shout out. He He's always there to catch me when I'm using a word incorrectly. Oh. I think he caught me saying reticent instead of reminiscent oh. <laughs> and, and ironed me out real nicely. Well, your command of the language is, is absolutely I magnificent. Try. And my ability to power through when I'm absolutely full of it and using a word incorrectly, it's the confidence. you got to yes, sell it hard exactly. and they will buy it. I guess Robbie. that's what it means. I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. Um, well, folks, if you're listening, you're obviously very familiar with this voice, but you don't always get to see the face. Ali is usually, as he says, in a booth. Uh, so you don't you know, always appear or ever appear, actually, on the Poker After Dark episodes. Out of curiosity, so what does that sort of physical setup look like? You walk into, you know, how is it like a telephone booth? Like, what, what are we talking about? It's here? a meat locker based on how cold <laughs> they keep it. I'll tell you that. It is sub-zero sometimes uh-huh. in the booth. Um, well, obviously, Poker Go built a spectacular uh, studio and production facility oh, yeah. over at the main valet area next to Bulatova Fine Art. Um, and I walk in, take a little left near the green room, an indescript door, and Behind that, I have spent so many hours of my life. And it's it's kind of weird to think about, right? Because you're not in a big space. Right. You know, I, sometimes I wonder, I'm like, really? I'm just going to wither away <laughs> in obscurity in this little small telephone booth, for lack of a way to put it. This little ice chest. Um, but, you know, I mean, it is what it is. I'm used to it at this point. I, I think I was super excited to find out that I'm going to be working the break desk of, of the main event this year, which is a role normally reserved for Kara. I'm not sure if it was challenges with her being able to leave Slovenia to yeah. come. Um, and I, I was able to do it once before when, when she was pregnant with uh, her child. And um, I, I, I do like being able to be on camera because it's just, it's just a different dynamic. I yeah. think, you know, it's, it's a flexing a different muscle, yep. uh, so to speak. And it's more often reserved for my outside of poker endeavors, uh, not inside of poker. The, the nice thing about working in the booth is I can wear the sweats and, uh, you know, T-shirts and <laughs> it doesn't matter. There's no hair. There's no makeup. Indeed. Uh, and the vanity years have since passed me by, I think, as far <laughs> as needing or thirsting or longing to be on camera and, and you know, be considered important. Well, you can't you can't rock a scarf without being on camera to show how, you know, rocking you are. Of the uh, scarf. Listen, the scarf is being rocked. I mean, That's I appreciate that we're on a, a Zoom call or whatever here. Yeah. With this, <laughs> whatever's going on but you know i brought it i knew i was it's gonna be stuff. on camera with you today i didn't want to look like a schlub it is uh, now I mean, how will that a schlub a schlub a schlub no a schlub is uh oh, when, when you're schlepping you something yes, yes. Exactly. so a schlub is uh, no, a what, what you look like putts, putts, putts yes work? Uh, <laughs> i don't know i can listen the, uh, it's not just seinfeld there's a lot of yiddish that floats around the poker community as well oh my god but uh yeah uh ali 
to try, guys. <laughs> this is so much fun. I'm really enjoying this. Um, Ali, um, there are a lot of commentators in poker. Um, every commentator has their own style, and they all have their own, perhaps, preparation routines. You alluded to earlier um, that you kind of like the freewheeling style a little bit more than the scripted stuff, but, you know, you can't always, maybe I'm wrong, you can't always just sort of walk into the booth and just, you know, you know, by the by the seat of your pants. Uh, how much preparation do or do you not do generally? Robbie, you've set up a real bear trap for me here. I regret to inform those of you out there who might be under the ridiculously false impression that I put in tremendous amounts of preparation work. I have honestly walked into the booth with, I'm not exaggerating, four seconds to spare before we have gone to air before. Oh, but not once. with regularity. Yeah. And it's a... Shocker that I was able to continue being gainfully employed after that specific occurrence. <laughs> but I mean, look, it's it's been a real point of contention between myself and one of my producers, and I won't talk about him. I mean, we've been around each other a long time, mm-hmm. and he goes nuts mm. over the fact that he feels like, oh, if only you prepared so much more, you'd be so good, and da, 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 you're great, you're good, but you'd be great. It's and like this, Shaq shooting free throws, and, right? Yeah, yeah okay. I mean, look, he was st- you're still gonna gonna take them on your team absolutely and all every right? time but i'm not trying to compare myself to Shaq. i am not, i'm not dunking the ball all night but um yeah i mean initially i think if i'm speaking candidly there were moments where because i've been doing this so long and because you know poker commentary had become kind of like riding a bike mm. that scaling back a little bit on all of that prep was sort of gamifying the experience for Ooh, me a okay, little bit and okay. that's like the therapist couch um obviously unfair uh-huh. um to to anybody at home watching if i'm not able to deliver you know things that i would be otherwise had i prepared a little bit more so mea culpa um but uh, you know the main i think is where I, the most preparation that i do takes place mm-hmm. there's a lot of faces and people that you just don't know right that are going to end up on a broadcast on the feature table and so it requires a little bit more mm-hmm. read through things and make sure you have an idea of what you'd like to say once that person gets involved in a pod, things like that. Right. Very stuff that, by the way, Norman Chad, when it comes to prep, the man is an absolute beast. He walks in with like this main event Bible of sorts, which is notes that he scribbled throughout the course of like countless years. And I marvel mm. at, at that. And there is no substitute, by the way. I mean, you are not going to replace the archive that is Lon and Norm when it comes to the mm. main event yep. with anybody. Yeah, you know, me and Nick, whoever other tandem team, it's just not going to happen. Mm. And anytime I bring them up, I always want to make sure because I know a lot of people have been outspoken. They think very supportive when they take to social and they're like, oh, you guys are great. and You should get in and, you know, screw Lana and Norm or whatever. And I'm like, listen, everybody loves ice cream and there's more than one flavor for a reason. Ooh, and a lot, of, a lot of people like what Lon and Norm do, mm-hmm. I have tremendous respect for it. And I think that that's a throne that they should be given the opportunity to step down from if and when they want to mm. on their own terms. Yeah. I will never, ever, ever go out of my way to do anything that would jeopardize their ability to, to do that job, which truly is perhaps one of the few remaining ones for, for me personally to kind of ascend to. Mm. Um, and yeah, yeah, like Prince Charles doesn't just go and become king, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not going to lead a coup. You know exactly. what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm not looking for like some polonium isotope to sprinkle into his coffee. So, he, you know, he kicks the bucket. Of wow. Spear, you five five dollar oh, word there. You know, whoever had plutonium isotope it as was the polonium, password. I believe. 
Putin deployed on one of his ex-KGB <laughs> guys in London, smeared it on a park bench or something. God. You know, I, my brain is a scary place, man. I, I, mean, ha- like- I, I have to give the shout outs. Uh, Norman Chat, I believe, if I remember correctly, was episode 26. Lon McCarran was episode number 42. And Kara Scott, if I remember correctly, may have been number 17. But you guys got to go to cardschat.com slash podcast where you can listen to and watch all of our previous episodes. This one is number 60 with Ali. So hold on. Yes, there is. <laughs> Lon's already beginning to give me gut that he's only number 42. <laughs> I mean, if you think Lon's upset, how do you think number 60 feels? Well, you're, 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 you're hard to catch. You're slippery. And like Didug. Like hide behind the accent, if you will, Straczynski. You mentioned uh, the great Nick Shulman, and uh, you do have a wonderful chemistry with everyone you work with in the booth. But in particular, uh, you and Nick Shulman, you are quite the dynamic duo. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, what sort of fairy dust sort of falls from the sky when you two enter the booth together? It's, it's quite I, magical. It's so weird, man. We, we just complement each other really nicely because... We are far from the same person, right? Mm. We do find some common ground. Mm-hmm. And then I think delightfully so, we find polar opposite ground on a number of occasions. And admittedly, I will play devil's advocate because I know the entertainment value that lies on the back end of me taking a contrarian position to something that Nick is talking about or by grabbing him and pulling him into the you know, depths and the abyss of my tangential proclivities. Ooh, uh, wow, and love it. And he... Uh, he gets tilted by it legitimately yeah, from yeah. time to time. And I think he feels as though there is genuine irreverence that he cannot stomach that I exhibit <laughs> in the most inopportune of moments. Yeah. And he really does have a deep respect for the game. And not that I don't, mm. but I have more of a respect for laughter, yes. I think, at times. And I'm willing to have a calculated trade-off. Mm. Um, and I hope that those out there appreciate it. And like I said, sometimes you know, people like our flavor of ice cream. Yeah. Sometimes people like others. I feel as though we caught lightning in a bottle when the pairing was was made. Mm. Um, it saddens me that Nick is such a talented poker player that for him to make a commitment mm. to just actually being in the booth with me exclusively as opposed to being a poker player would be turning his back on not only a tremendous investment in cultivating you know, the, the player that he is now, but also just economically, it wouldn't make sense. You know, this is it's not as, always as about you know, money, though. It's not, but you know, at the same time, he's a father. He's got a family to yep. support. And let's face it, I mean, you've got this window and this yeah. sweet spot to to put it together for yourself mm-hmm. in life. A lot of times, and and he's got that opportunity. He plays stratospherically high poker, and you know, when a, a big blind in a game that he plays might represent a day's work, you know, as a poker commentator who is on the upper crust of of compensation. It's kind of tough to rationalize the opportunity cost, you know? And so I respect and appreciate that. Mm. Selfishly, I always want him to work with me. And I am am impassioned in my pitch to anybody who approaches me and asks, well, who do you want to work with on this? Uh And I'm like, look, (laughs) there's one name. It is Nick Shulman. You get that man. And you bring him here. Uh, But he's tough to nail down, man. And I I know why. I get it. The uh, the great Remco Rinkema, uh, you may have listened just before this, uh, to the one of the WSOP podcasts. Uh, he may have stolen this question, not word for word, what but we did, back. right? Uh, no, he's not stolen, but uh, somehow we just came up with the same uh, question. I suppose great minds think alike. Uh, Ali, during the WSOP, you and Nick tend to be on the late shift 
of funny. live stream coverage. And I'm reading it word for word just to compare. It is the, the night of- shift officially. <laughs> Your commentary can definitely slide a bit into the uh, later night fair, a little more risque, shall we say. So just exactly how much leeway do the producers give you? Right? It's really kind of the same question in a give way. Give me? <laughs> I don't know how much they give me, Robbie. How much do I take? Aha, uh-huh, aha. Uh-huh. That's a that's a larger figure, for sure. Um, look, it, that whole branding was a total accident, whereby my warped and demented mind was loopy. I think we were deep into an evening of coverage, and I just said, "Welcome back to the night shift." Uh huh. Believe I described myself as Ali Peanut Butter Najat alongside Nick Jelly Shulman. <laughs> Because what goes better than P oh, yeah. and J? Absolutely. And it immediately drew his ire as he looked back at me with this like, what are you saying? Oh, and like, this is now a recurring bit guarantee. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It. That's for sure. I remember I tweeted a photo of me with this just like completely impish grin on my face as I had taken like industrial sized Skippy and Smuckers and put it next to each other. I love it. And put headsets onto each wow. as like a representation of he and I in the foreground. And, and snapped a selfie, and he was like, what? Who are you? This is great. Um, I love it, man. I mean, I'm a big kid at heart. I love I love to laugh. I love to be entertaining. And um, I, Look, I, I push the boundaries. Mm-hmm. I definitely, you know, can get out of line. Um, OOL, as Joey Ingram would, O-O-L, would describe wow. it. Um, but as I, as I told Remco and as I tell anybody, I recognize that they're are risks that we take, especially in today's cancel culture, mm-hmm. when we go down, you know, these roads. Um, but I also feel like it's tremendously important to entertain people. Poker isn't just a bunch of all-in and calls and coolers and things like that. There are stretches where, you know, there's not a lot happening. Guys right. get walks, raise yeah. and take it, raise three bet, take it. Mm-hmm. And if we can step in and create some entertainment, some laughter, some story time, some tangents you know um that'll keep people laughing and keep them engaged and keep them entertained and i feel as though we've done our job you right. know i mean it's harder money that you could be spending on hulu or amazon prime or netflix to buy a poker go subscription and um you know i'm tremendously thankful because it is precisely those people who allow me to be gainfully employed and, mm. and enjoy the life that i do and i hope that they feel as though i am humbly delivering them you know uh their money's worth and, yeah. and for me that metric Whenever somebody comes up and they go, hey, man, I really enjoy your commentary. Nice. My very first question, do I make you laugh? Ooh. That's what's important. That's interesting. And when they say yes, that's that's all I, I really care about because I look at that as my job. I want Phenomenal. them to be entertained, and that's a, a really strong metric for me, standing that I'm, that I'm entertaining. Really? Sure. Well, well, beyond uh, Ali at the mic, you know, Nick is not the only poker playing commentator in this duo uh you know you came up uh, in poker you're an accomplished player you fire in some of the highest mixed sta- mixed game stakes uh in las vegas so i mean you've been playing poker since even before the money maker boom so i'm kind of wondering how did you get into that originally um well if i'm being honest it was kind of tragedy in my life that, that mm. led me to poker i was going to uh college at uc berkeley um, and I had played some any any poker with the guys from the community. Uh, a little bit of like kitchen table games with uh, buddies in high school. I think our senior year. Mm-hmm. That was never really like a oh, I'm into poker. And and honestly, there just wasn't that many people who 
were playing poker back then, certainly not young people, right? In local card rooms. And um, my girlfriend ended up passing away in a car accident. Um, this was in December of 1998. And really threw a curveball into what was otherwise a pretty smooth sailing, glassy surfaced lake of life, charmed, you know, in, in all respects. And I stopped working both of the shows I was doing for NBC and I dropped out of college at UC Berkeley. And I was kind of looking for an outlet. And as somebody who does, has never done any drugs and mm. you know, doesn't really, I, I've never been drunk. I don't drink mm. and um, try to avoid like soda. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, people always ask me if it's like, oh, your dad was an alcoholic or something. Like mm. you had to have a busted family situation or, right, right. you know, bad experience off the wagon, on the wagon. I'm like, no, man, I'm just a lunatic sober. So let's go ahead and hang on to whatever yeah. inhibitions I have. Keep okay. them intact. That um, poker is the vice. That's good enough. Yeah, right? I guess, <laughs> you know, poker, I guess, was the vice. But it was really an outlet because I, I was seeking a place in which to 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just go out and and just pass time mindlessly and mm. escape what was going on. And, mm -hmm. and I never imagined it would have morphed into something lucrative, I guess, mm. the combination of running into Eric and Prahlad Lindgren uh, and Friedman. Um, and uh, and also just some competitive spirit came together to, to turn it into something that I never would have imagined would have taken me to places that it has. And I'm tremendously thankful. You know, we all synthesize grief and, and trauma in our own respective ways and, um, you know, tragedy to triumph, I guess. Right. It's perhaps the ultimate making lemonade uh, out of lemons. Very much so. Right. Very much so. Um, when did mixed games come into your life? You know, it's not uh, always so typical when you say you start out in poker and, oh, the mix, it's good stuff. Yeah. Um, the very first time I played mix, I, I was a pretty stratospherically high limit holding player. I played as high as 816. Ooh, which at the dollars. time. Yeah, dollars. Would dwarf the heck. No, this was pesos out in Cabo. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just uh, have to clarify. You never know. It was, uh, it was really dwarfing any no limit game that you could think of at the time mm. uh, that it was being spread and 400, 800 was kind of my bread and butter. And um, it's a game that's played really, really fast. It has since been solved effectively. I mean, yep. it's, it's a very mechanical form of poker. And the guys you'll see playing those limits right now are the, the best of the best. Mm -hmm. Just back then there was still money to be made. Okay. Um, Fair. But the very first time I played any mixed game, the Hold'em game turned into a mix where it was Hold'em, Hold'em, Triple Draw. Oh, so the very first non-limit hold'em or limit stud game that I ever played, I played at the 400-800 level, and it was triple draw, and wow. I absolutely butchered it. I would win money in both the hold'em rounds and then give it back in triple draw as right. I tried to figure out the game. And that's a very nuanced game. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my very first time. And then I, I didn't really play any mix after that. I was like, God, how much money did I lose tonight in the triple draw <laughs> round? Um, and then during that one year where HLN was picking up the bills while I traveled the world, I took a trip to Vegas and, um, as one does mixed games. Yeah. <laughs> you always find your way to sin city in the 702 and mixed games were kind of where the bigger action was taking place. Mm. Limit Hold'em, the biggest action that was happening regularly was 2040. There was some 4080 that got played in Bellagio, the Mecca of poker was, was where it was happening. And, um, then I, I just kind of jumped in the saddle. I, wow. I had some stud sense. Mm -hmm. um, it was an 8160 game. And um, yeah, the the stud sense sort of helped get me through those games. Stud eight or better, the Raz, the, the stud high stuff. You paid a and little then, tuition and just sort yeah, of Yeah, for sure. Yeah. When I first got to, got to town playing 8160, I think I went on like a 
70 or 80 K downswing. It was pretty demoralizing. Um, but I knew that, you know, this is, this is what it's going to take potentially to kind of learn. And I'm sure the likes of Ellie and everybody else that were just frothing, foaming at the mouth at the idea that I would come in. I mean, I put my name on a 200, 400 and they'd be like, my man, Ali Nejat, he loves to play poker. He wants to come and put his name to two, four. I love this. I'm, well, of course you love me. I'm a complete fish in the game. Um, paid the tuition, uh, still learning every single day. Uh, in fact, players who are regulars in the 8160 game that I host, which is now at Resorts World, mm-hmm. one of them is Kevin Gerhardt. Two bracelets this year. Yep. Deep runs by multiple people. I had to threaten in the group chat that I was going to remove any game that anybody final tabled, let alone <laughs> one of bracelet. Gerhardt wins a horse event. I'm like, well, there goes half the mix. Right. Um, <laughs> I, it was all in jest, obviously. But, you know, I was kind of like a proud papa. I'm like, who knew yep. that this game is actually not as soft as right. we, would, we would like to believe. But it is a game whereby we have sort of whittled ourselves down to a very pleasant group of people mm. to play with outside of the, the World Series where it just blows up and we have a bunch of strange money that comes in and guys yeah. That, yeah. that come around once a year. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was just coming around and looking for big action that kind of got me into the mix, paid my tuition and, you know, been a, been a winning player in the game for the better part of the last three three plus years. Well, that's good. That kind of dovetails into the next question yeah. because uh, the mixed game you play has a mandatory nickname policy. I believe you, oh, are, yeah. you are Baba, as in Alma yes, Baba. Yes. So, wondering if you could give us a little bit of an inside look at the game and the 40 thieves with whom you play. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's more than 40 thieves. There's misfits. <laughs> there's all kinds of, of people. Uh, we got Happy, which uh, is my buddy Ron, who tends to have uh, sort of an angry affect at the table from time to time, much like you call the big guy, you know, tiny, not <laughs> Uh, we gave him Happy as a nickname. Um, our buddy Andrew tore his, his ACL or something, or he had a he had a knee injury, and he brought one of those scooters in one day. And I just looked up and was like, "Yeah, it's gonna be Scooter." <laughs> Great sort of nickname. Uh-huh. Um, Kevin Gerhardt actually, mm-hmm. uh, when he joined, I gave him an acronym, WBK, and uh, stands for White Boy Kevin. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> He came in. I was like, yeah, no, your wife, boy, Kevin. That's it. Um, and we, yeah, man, we've got, uh, there's actually a guy, Nathan Gamble. He's yes. A very prolific tournament player. Episode number 59. Oh, just before, just before this one. Great he guy. was, he was chief because he had this very authoritative beard. He had been growing and, and, uh, confirmed looked yes. like he came straight from a teepee of some sort <laughs> of a smoke out or something. So they yeah. called him chief. Um, I hate that. Like some of the more, hilarious ones are eluding me because it really well part of the reason that i did it robbie by the way was because i didn't want people sniping the game Mm. because it wasn't fully private okay by looking at who's on the list and being like okay i want to play today Uh if you're an outsider it's like you have no idea what you're dealing with you're looking at scooter and baba and you know somebody tweeted once a screenshot of the list instead of read like a like a, a a british crime you know, movie, the characters in a, in a Guy Ritchie movie or something like that. And I was super proud. I was like, that's my work. Um, (laughs) And it's also cool because I think people forget that camaraderie and a sense of fraternalism is absolutely a big part of why many of us were drawn to this game. Initially, Mm. it's not just the money. It's not just the competition. Um, And that's why I think when COVID hit and the game was moved online 
it didn't last very long because we realized right. that part of it was very devoid yes. of the experience. Maybe we should have gotten on Zoom yep. as a mandatory thing or whatever. But um, but yeah, the nicknames kind of make you feel like you belong. Right. You know what I mean? You're part of us. And what's really cool, I mean, you're playing, you know, 8160, I believe is the yeah. stakes, yeah. right? I mean, those are pretty high stakes for most people. Yeah. But the you know, way you speak about it, the way Nathan spoke a little about it in episode 59 he plays like a home game. And that's that's pretty cool. That's something that anyone could identify with whatever stakes you play. I mean, I play, yeah. you know, one, two, two, four, four, eight, that kind of stuff. And yeah, I mean, you're talking about it like I talk about my home game too. And I think that's a, that's a pretty cool thing. I yeah, because I, I hate the notion that there has to be mutual exclusivity between those desirable elements of the game mm. and playing big. Okay. Or reasonably big. I feel as though the limit is such that it's palatable for everybody who's there. Sure, you can get stung. I've had 15K, 14K losers where, you know, you just, nothing goes yeah, right for yeah. you. That's a big figure for most people. Yeah. Um, but it's nothing that's going to render anybody, you know, hungry the following day who's mm-hmm. playing in the game. And that's also important to me. I don't want to skin anybody. I don't want to actually, right. you know, put anybody in a torture chamber, right? Sure, I mean, sure. it's it's big enough to where we actually take it seriously and there's competitive juices that are being exchanged, right. but it's also palatable enough that, you know, everybody who is stepping forward um, has the bankroll, uh, right. at least, you know, unless they're fraudulently misrepresenting, you know, the, the, their ability to play mm-hmm. um, to where it, it still allows us to, to laugh and poke fun and, sure. and, and have fun with it. Sure. Well, I mean, you know me as a big uh, mixed games uh, aficionado, Birds promoter, fan, old deal. Yeah. Well, as I was saying, and you do so at a you know, significantly higher level. Plus, you also commentate on it. You know, Dolly's game. You know, you see. Oh the, yeah, yeah. We see mixed games. You know, at a pretty high. I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective with your experience, you know, how do we further promote it? Because you know, you still walk into any poker room all around the country, all around the world basically no limit hold'em. Sometimes you get some PLO tables. How do we get more mixed game poker being played? I think obviously now that we technically tech, excuse me, technologically Mm. are able to track a lot of these mixed games, the ability for us to deliver broadcasts of the mixed games Mm -hmm. and just create and generate more awareness and subsequent interest is really kind of the first step. Um, obviously social media is, you know, creates platforms for everybody to, to kind of do their part to, to support stuff, whether it's tweeting a hand history or, you know, taking a picture of a group of misfits that are gathered around the poker table. You're going to find some of the most colorful personalities because we no longer on the era are in the era of like the Umberto Brennis's of the world and, you know, the, the Phil Locks and Antonio's 1.0 where, you know, the Jodic is coming. Hey, and all this he's coming. Um, because you just, you have to be super focused. I mean, No Limit Hold'em is a minefield of talent oh, now. Yeah. Dog and dog. Yeah. For sure. I mean, shark-infested waters. Mm. And so the mixed games, which were created sort of out of the desire to make it so that people would not be good, so good at every game that we're playing. The stud guys would maybe be good at the stud games. The flop guys would be good at the Hold'em in the Omaha and that's horse, right? And then you open it up to draw games, and yep. now we have these hybrid games. Yeah, we create games, mm-hmm. and um, it really helps even the playing field a little bit more. Mm. Nobody's in the lab figuring out double board Omaha. Speak for yourself. You know what I mean? Oh, well, Norman Chad's taught Norman Chad has taught me a few things about double board Omaha. Just saying. Go ahead. Go on. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, obviously, there's, there's everybody that's going to be looking to, to to find an edge, but right. the point being that there's like 
so few opportunities to play that game at super high stakes that the incentive for somebody to write some software or solve it or deploy all that computing power to it isn't there, mm-hmm. which helps insulate us from the snipers and the sharks. Yeah. Um, and that's been a goal of mine as well. You know what I mean? I, I really wanted to whittle out sort of the undesirable elements of, of poker um, in everything that I've done. Uh, like even curating the mix that I did mm. was really designed to lower variance. It's not bloody. It's right. predominantly split pot games. The one big bet game that we play is a 10 bet cap. So 1600. And it's a five card split pot game, which is big O. Mm-hmm. And one of the other pain points for me was always like how people would get bet out of shape because, oh, you're running it twice with that guy, but you're only, only running it once with me. Or, oh, now that you got a good hand, you only want to run it once. I just said, look, you got to run it twice. It's a mandatory run it twice. Love Lowers it. variance, no arguments. Now the mix is set. We right. don't spend the first half hour of the day with this guy threatening to quit because he's not, you're not right. playing his game and I don't want to play that game. And, and you know, all the big egos like clash. This is our games. It's 13 games. It's in the description of the mix. That's it. That's wonderful. And we even split it up so that you're not playing back-to-back flop and stud and draw games. So you never make that mistake of playing the wrong game. Exactly. You know, and, and brilliant. Some more rules are better sometimes. More, you know, I guess. I mean, they're not a ton of rules, but it's just things that were designed to make the experience more pleasant for everybody involved. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, I mean, Ali, you know, you, as you know, as we've said, you're basically a cash game player. Sure. Tournament players, when you look at their careers and you want to look at their accolades and their trophy shelves, it's very easy to point to, oh, this was a highlight. This was a highlight. I mean, ostensibly from someone else to do that. And of course they do that themselves. Maybe it's not, you know, necessarily the biggest cash or the biggest result, but you know, it's easy to point to yourself as a cash game player. I know that can't do any research on that. So what are some of the great memories or highlights from your cash game playing over all these years? Wow. Great memories. We'll settle for one. <laughs> wow. How ill-prepared I am for this question because I've been playing for so, so long. Mm. Oddly enough, you're asking me from the perspective of being a cash game player. Yeah. I think one of my most memorable things was a tournament memory. And I don't play a lot of tournaments no you do not the celebrity invitation as evidenced by your yeah. one recorded tournament cash on the hand and mouth go yeah. on yes please uh <laughs> the so the world poker tour celebrity invitational which took place annually at the commerce casino mm-hmm. i was fortunate enough to get an invitation i don't even know if that event still happened <laughs> um or if i've just been cut you know off uh, no longer make the cut mm-hmm. um but during the poker road radio years, okay um I actually made a super deep run in that event. And that event hmm. only pays the final table, the top six. Okay. And for a while, we had this running joke about if you finish seventh and you bubble a World Poker Tour, which were all the events that Poker Road Radio followed, right. you were, you know, Seabock because he finished seventh <laughs> so often. And wouldn't you know it, oh boy. I end up the bubble boy, the brutal TV, the double bubble, TV final table, and the money, you know, bubble. As I finished seventh in that particular event, but I had so much fun and it was so cool to experience a rail. I don't get that in the cash game. Right. It's a rail. That's interesting. Right. And having all these people cheering you on and mm-hmm. invested in your success and fans and and Joe and Gavin. And it was like, man, I kind of get the intoxicating, huh, you know, lure of of tournament poker. The deep run yeah. is is a potent narcotic. That, that is, you know, it's so fascinating that that is actually your answer. So I'm kind of wondering, I mean, I, I, you know, one result, I'm sure you've played in more than one tournament, 
So with that, that, that drug, that, that taste that you got, why don't you play more tournaments? Time. I mm. think, you know, uh, maybe it's just an excuse, but I, I really, a lot of times these are multi-day events. Yes. I don't have multiple days in my schedule generally during the world series to, to make a deep run in mm-hmm. something that doesn't stop the likes of Tony Dunst during the world poker tour, or uh, even Mike Sexton, who rest in peace, right, Mike. Makes, yeah. made some final tables as well, let alone Vince. And he won um, um, the WPT you know, title. No, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Norman Chad plays, you know, um, <laughs> like no, but, and did not win a bracelet or a title, but yes, <laughs> it's on. never been an issue. He's always in the booth at the final table. Don't worry about it. That's why he doesn't. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of that. And also I just don't think I'm cut from that cloth. I mean, mm. it takes a lot of discipline, a lot of patience. Mm. I kind of more on the instant gratification fair side yeah. of the spectrum. But now that you mention it, you do have one memorable cash moment as well. Yes. And it was oh, when cash. Yes. I was playing eight and 1600. Okay. At the time I had Joanna Krupa with me here in Las Vegas. And uh, I wasn't like trying to impress her. We had been sort of put together professionally. I obviously had a humongous crush um, because I was supposed to teach her poker and she had signed with a company called Titan poker at the time. Mm, We'd wow. done some work together Old and, school. And, and we got along. And so she was sweating me and obviously it was intense. I mean, I'm playing eight and 1600 and here I am trying to explain why I'm doing <laughs> what I'm doing to you. And it's pretty menial questions, if any, that she's answering. And at some point she was just not particularly interested. And I was mm. like peak stuck. And she's like, I'm hungry. Oh, no. and I was like, Oh no. <laughs> and everyone else is smiling. You're hungry. <laughs> I'm starving to win a chip. I'm stuck 50,000 and you want to go eat. Okay, we go eat. Game breaks, of course. What's the next biggest game in the room? Forty eighty. Oh, I'm gonna get unstuck tonight. Oh no! Uh, you know, I got to hang out with Joanna. There you go. I mean, so yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Uh, the Poker Hall of Fame greatly accentuates tournament results over cash game success, uh, and that's just much more easily identifiable. To point, when uh, David Oppenheim got inducted a couple years ago, lots of casual poker fans were like, who? Right? So what are your thoughts on that as, you know, someone who's primarily a cash game player? How, how, how does one relate to that? And perhaps should, you know, there be more criteria or weight applied, you know, when, when, when the votes are being cast? I don't know. A little bit of a bad question there. but I No, think it's get, not a bad question. Poker, badly phrased. Poker isn't just tournaments. Yeah. Cash games precede tournaments. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I think it's absurd to presume that the Hall of Fame should only be quantified or or qualifications should only center around your tournament accolades. There are guys out there that have been doing it forever. I mean, the Poker Players Championship awards the Chip Reese Trophy. I don't think Chip Reese was known for playing a bunch of tournaments and winning bracelets. He won Chip, three, but that's not, you know, but that's not what he's, right, known. he's exactly. known for being out there playing in Bobby's room yeah. in the biggest games that were being played and being prolific at all of those games, his induction into the hall of fame, by the way, another dearly departed member of the industry, um, Chip Reese, uh, you know, it was centered around him being a gangster in the cash game at 40 that that's the chip reese rule you can't get inducted before age 40 because that's when chip got it right and and so when a guy like opie gets in there Mm. 
how is it any different mm. than than chips induction? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Opie's got got a bracelet or two, doesn't he? I, I, think, he I think he has one. I'm not okay. Not there sure. you go. So he's he's he scaled the summit. He, out he there final the tabled the the poker players championship once. I do right. I mean, that. so you know, he's out there. He's shown up. He does his thing. But yeah, I think it would be a, a big mistake for the Hall of Fame to suddenly become skewed into only acknowledging tournament players. I get it. There are guys out there who are going to be completely unbeknownst to the gen pop uh, because they may not live here in Vegas or some other mecca of poker where mm-hmm. cash game, you know, uh, prowess is being uh, procured. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I have no problem with Opie being inducted. And sure, I think anybody that knows him knows that he's been out there oh, yeah. beating games, the toughest of lineups, oh, yeah. the a, highest without stakes. And, and that is a respectable, you know, endeavor as well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, it's, you know, not better. It's not worse. It's just different. A different aspect, right? right. Um, Ali, let's go to your personal life. Okay. Travel a little let's, bit. You're, you're yeah. pretty. You're pretty selective with your social media postings. I mean, Instagram is obviously one thing, but yeah. you know, the the preferred platform, so to speak, of the uh, poker collective is tends to be Twitter. Yeah, and yeah. you are very, very Smart. reserved uh, yeah. on yeah. on Twitter. Um, why is that? You know, part of it is because I have a lot of discomfort with respect to like some of the vanity and the self-importance that kind of look at me aspect Mm. of of social Mm. when I'm asked about social and I have some, I have a very big footprint on Twitter and I'm verified there and Instagram, Instagram, I certainly haven't put in enough work to have the same kind of footprint. And and to be fair, I I don't know how much work I put in to get where I was on Twitter. I was just an early adopter who got verified. Mm -hmm. Um, But I struggle with the sense that social media could very well prove to be a net negative on society. Mm. I mean, you look at sort of the self-esteem issues that adolescents are experiencing and suicide rates among teens and preteens. I mean, it's, it's tough enough to go through life as a, as a kid. When I was growing up and there were no cell phones and there, there, there was no Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all of that. Sure. And, and I hear some of the horror stories about having a parent and child through that period of life in this world. Um, and I see, you know, kind of how you talk to a kid and they're like, I want to be an influencer. Yeah. And I'm like, listen, man, an influencer is somebody who has demonstrated exemplary prowess or talent in a certain capacity or arena, and then earns the platform to be an influencer. You're trying to wag the dog because you look around and the thirst for acknowledgement and the thirst for kind of presence and attention that these platforms breed are toxic to me. And, and, you know, I I feel complicit sometimes if, if I get too into it, like the stories thing I didn't do for a really long time. Cause I was like, come on guys, are you serious? Like, you're going to make your own Truman show. You're going to like, it's your own personal look at me thing to like, cares man like who really cares and by the way look up from your phone and live your life present don't be constantly consumed i mean the unhappiness levels in some of these people who are prolific content creators that are making huge sums of money in some of these platforms whether they're youtube or instagram or or twitter or whatever it is is high and i'm like 
what are you doing it for, right? Isn't mm. the objective in life to be happy? And if that's the objective, then you have become so consumed with this as a means to either money or fame and pres- presuming that that's going to somehow deliver happiness. You're just missing the point. I want to give and you a hug. My God. Like, I mean, is, wow. It just resonates I mean, I mean this is super yeah. heartfelt, man. And I struggle because nowadays, if I go into an audition, one of the first questions is, well, how many followers do you have? Mm. Like, why don't you worry less about how many followers I have and worry about how good a job I'm going to do on the show that you want me to do for you. But the, the concern is we need eyeballs and we need somebody that can convert those eyeballs. Well, the big nasty secret, I hate to break it to you, is if you're a huge YouTube person and then you go into conventional media and you get yourself a show, and I've been witness to this experiment myself during my time at HLN, you're not going to bring those people with you. They aren't going to follow you into the cable space more often than not. And frankly, conventional media might not even be able to compensate you at the same level that that social can. And you are master of your own domain. You don't answer to a CEO or a big corporation. You don't get your hands tied, you know, when you're out there. So a lot of these guys don't even want to to transition into that. Um, So so getting back to kind of the crux of your question, Mm. my reservations are like, sometimes I'm like, dude, just be present, live your life. Sometimes it's, don't be complicit in this thing, which is kind of not the greatest for the world. I feel mm. like um, sometimes it's laziness because it takes okay. a lot of work to constantly curate content sure. and you become a slave to it. Mm-hmm. And if you do end up getting, you know, a big following, they can be very demanding and, and yep. insatiable. And the minute you stop delivering content regularly, they're like mm. moving on to the next thing. And if you outsource a lot of your self-esteem to your followers, the point where I hear about kids posting something and then texting everyone they know to get likes or comments on it. And then if they don't get enough likes or comments, they'll take it down because it just, it's not good enough or whatever. I mean, like, that's not a life I want to live. You know what I mean? As a, as a old adult, I don't think I'm going to be susceptible to that, but you know, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that you and I know who push a lot of content. And I think that they are, like victims of this phenomenon mm. and they are drinking that Kool-Aid and I don't wow. know how happy they are. You know what I mean? And, and it can be leveraged to, to really lucrative opportunities. And I respect the people that do it. But, mm-hmm. you know, for me personally, I'm like, look, I, I'm not that special. I'm not so important. Obviously I, I tweet the private jet stuff because it's extraordinary, but one of my last posts, I mean, if you read the caption, it was just like, look, man, I've been super blessed. I'm super lucky. I'm not up here trying to tell you that I paid for this private jet. I didn't. I happen to know somebody who was involved in a private jet company and he has empty legs from time to time. Or, you know, I've got casino hosts who I know that I've delivered players to, and this is their way of saying thank you. This isn't me balling out of control, you know? And I embrace that because I never want to deliver that inauthentic BS rendition, that human highlight reel it's not fair. Nobody talks about, I cried in the shower today and I don't know why. You know what I mean? Because then you'll get shamed for, you know, seeking attention or whatever. I mean, every day people go through something very different than the best moment of their entire life. And we get inundated courtesy of these algorithms with that. And there's been documentaries that touch on it, you know? And so I'm like, no, man, I, I want to be authentic as possible. I kind of, I play in the sandbox because everybody does sometimes, but you know, this is me out there. I'm just meandering along. I don't have life figured out. I mm-hmm. can't tell you that that I had some linear thought, put one foot in front of the other. I blueprinted this and I'm crushing it. Right. You know, I'm, I'm a big kid. I'm a fraudulent adult. If I have a memoir, it's definitely going to be called the fraudulent adult. I don't, I, I, I don't, you know, 
I don't know, man. I, I, I don't have it all figured out. And I hope that's reassuring, not scary for incredible. people. Incredible. It's an incredibly deep, um, I would even say, you know, not just insightful, but a profound uh, an important response. And, you know, again, another section of this podcast that is a rewind it and listen to it over and over again. A lot of deep truths in there. And uh, you know, for that reason, like I said, you know, you're very selective when you do post it. And there's clearly a, um, not a methodology, but certainly a, a logic and a reasoning and a rationale for when you do choose to share these things. One of the things you did share, and we alluded to it in the, in the, in the introduction, is the pandas. I got to ask you about it. Yeah, man. And, you know, it's one of your coolest stories on Instagram. You spent volunteering at a conservation facility. So yeah. tell us about that. And, and where does it rank on the list of all-time cool things that you've done? Um, I am a bleeding heart animal lover <laughs> with no apologies whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, and if I meet people that are like, Ugh, animals, I'm like, are you out of your mind? These <laughs> sweet, precious cherub cherubs that we've been delivered from, you know, like the innocence and like the unconditional love. Like if you've ever had a dog, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, I, you know, I, when I travel, I'm basically looking for, for two things. One is a top 50 restaurant in the world because I'm a huge food buff. Okay. And the other one is, is there any extraordinary experience I can have with animals and, and the pandas I mean, you know, one of the most beloved animals out there and super rare, sure. super endangered. And I mean, every panda on earth belongs to China, in case you didn't know. Like, yeah, if they're, yeah, yeah, they're all zoo, loaned out. They're right, all exactly, loaned out. Right. They all belong to China. So if you really want to go and like have an experience with a panda, you got to go to the source. And so I, I flew into Chengdu. Um, and it was like a two hour drive, I think, outside of Chengdu in like an actual forest preserve. Um, and uh, volunteered. I mean, it wasn't glorious. We were, you know, chopping up bamboo and I've made panda cakes and uh, <laughs> scoop poop and, and all of that. But the payoff oh, those was are called panda cakes, right? No, <laughs> they're, they're not. we actually made the cakes that they really love. And I mean, they're so adorable, man. And they're so sweet. And they're just such a cute, cuddly little animal. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I had a 30 second clip where I got to go sit with a little guy, you know, the baby panda was just loving life, man. He just had his bamboo. He was laid out. <laughs> the funniest animals too, man. They do like these somersaults for fun. <laughs> And it's just adorable. And so, yeah, that was super cool. Also had a chance to go to Thailand and like the animal tourism thing is a little catchy, especially in parts of the world in Southeast Asia, because not everything is conservation. A lot of things are exploitation mm. and it's sad because it's economics and people want money, you know, and so they realize that I can go capture this animal and put it in a cage and then sell pictures or whatever. And look, I mean, there's not a lot of opportunity in a lot of parts of the world where these animals are, are native to and, you know, so this is just guys trying to make a living. And I, I want to say I understand, but it, it, it breaks my heart. And so mm. I'm really mindful about if I'm going to spend some money and I'm going to be a part of something, knowing that it's going to go to some good. And um, with the uh, the elephants, there's a, a woman who's committed her life to basically rescuing elephants from mm. you know, circuses and things like that and mm. letting them roam free. And I went and I, I had this chance to, with a really small group of people. I mean, there couldn't have been more than 18 of us and three female elephants who had been rescued, uh, who were, you know, old ladies, friends. Um, and they got to decide what we did for the day. Wow. We were with them and they wanted to go for a walk. So we went for a walk. They wanted, they wanted to go this way. We weren't going to tell them not to. And we went, they went right. to their little mud hole and they, they hung out and we sat there and waited for them <laughs> to be done with that. And we went over to another area where they know that it's mealtime if they want and pop these little mango rice, sticky rice balls and, and, they, you know, loved it. I've washed them. And I mean, it's just a fulfilling thing. I, awesome. I you know, I, it's just, that's, yeah, cool. I got, I got deep love for animals for love sure. It, man. Yeah. 
Well, speaking of deep love, the last thing I have to say before we move on to the community questions, and thank you all for submitting them. Oh. It's, not, it's not really a question. It's, it's just more of an observation, and I did say we would reference it. Um, I have to give a massive shout out to Kara Scott. Uh, it was episode number 21, so that's my confirmation. Uh, guys, after you finish listening to the show and all of the other Cards Chat podcasts, of course, go but mostly this, but mostly this part. Go and listen to the Heart of Poker podcast. It's an interview that Kara did with Ali. Uh, I know we covered a lot of poker-related ground in this episode, but uh, that episode was just like super duper powerful, and I cannot possibly recommend it enough. Uh, it made me want to conduct this interview even more. So it was, it's um, incredible stuff. You Absolutely. get emotional when you listen. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I was in the, I was actually on a power walk and I was listening and I had to stop and, um, you know, uh, my eyes uh, may have watered somewhat. Um, it was, it was yeah, quite deep. I think uh, like not to open up another fortune cookie here, right, right. Podcast, but um, there's a complete dearth of vulnerability in the world. I think that we've been kind of scorned out of being genuine and authentic with respect to our experiences. And it's very isolating to a lot of people. Um, who just kind of clam up and uh, don't want to be honest. Dude, it's so easy to look at someone else's life from the outside and be tempted to, to feel inadequate, you know, because it's so cool, especially now with the, you know, the steroid of, of social media where mm. you can so easily misrepresent and be fraudulent about these experiences, which you know, just make people feel even more bad about their you know, lackluster life or whatever. But if we were just a little bit more honest about everything that we're going through on a day-to-day basis, and realize that like we're one big tribe and mm. that collective universal experience is one that is not unique to any of us. It's, it's so tempting to be like, oh God, what was me on the only one? No, man, <laughs> no matter how bad it is, what happened to you, like when I lost my girlfriend in a car accident, I realized like I could snap my fingers every minute of the day after that somebody somewhere in the world yep just had that same thing happen to me so to sit here and feel bad for yourself or to feel like you're alone and this is something unique and, and you know emblematic of, of what crappy life you have is, is an absurd thought mm. and whatever it is somebody out there is going through it too and seek out that support and one of the ways in which you can feel better if you're going through something is always to to kind of be there for somebody else and, and get outside of yourself. You know what I mean? And, and it'll just bring a lot more, I feel like happiness to the world. You know? And if you didn't believe me, when I said you really need to listen to that podcast, re-listen to that last minute and a half and just realize that that is just uh, an absolute must listen. You will, uh, you will thank us uh, for, you know, those, I believe it was about 45 to 60 minutes of just uh, incredible talk. Uh, Kara asked the good questions and Ali gives uh, incredible answers there. Um, in this segment of the show, to very awkwardly pivot. No, um, nothing. Listen, <laughs> awkward, me? Get out. Let's go. We turn to you guys, our Cards Chat community, to see what questions that you wanted to ask. I'm excited, guests. by the way, about this because okay. I, I don't, don't feel like – I don't know because I love knowing like what people out there want to know. I'm, I'm super humbled by the idea that anyone cares about anything – that I'm doing. And I mean that this isn't just like me trying to script. What's the way to look most lovable to the public and check all those boxes in the thing, right? <laughs> love animals and say that you love what they want to ask. It's really not. I mean, this is just, I hope people can give me the benefit of the doubt. This yep. is who I am. Um, 
And so getting a chance to kind of like see what do they want to know is, is yeah. like super exciting to me. So well, yeah, let's that's, go. That's the unique thing. I'm into it. Content. So just a, a reminder, we have a dedicated thread on the Cards Chat forums. So as we announce who our future guests will be, please be sure to send in your questions. The first set of questions come from Yanko57. That's a name I haven't seen before. So thank you very much. Welcome to the forum and the community. And thank you for sending in these questions. Um, Yanka wants to know, Ali, do you think the road was harder for you to be a presenter because of your nationality? Wow, that's a really interesting question. Um, so my actual full name is Oliver Ali Reza Najat. And the reason is that my parents give me, uh, gave me and my sister, who, who are immigrants, by the way, that, that migrated to the United States prior to the revolution in Iran in uh, the mid-70s is when they came over um, and then had me and my sister, as their parents told them. Uh, by the way, you can't come. Like you're in the U.S., you're going to school, but hate to break it to you, the world as you know it, right. the country as you knew it, mm -hmm. is no longer the same. Do not come back. Right. And I, wow. I get super embarrassed because I'm like, dude, my dad was like 25, and my, you know, my mom was in like her, her early 20s, and they got that phone call, and then they figured it the hell out. You know what I mean? And I'm like, I don't know, like how. At 25, do you want to know what I was doing? <laughs> I was like check raising scumbags. Like my dad had to figure out how to put food on the table What's... for a family of four and like learn a language and, and get a job and and get a degree. And I, I'm like, well, it's super humbling. But anyway, the so um the the name Oliver was given to me mm. because my parents had some concerns about people being able to pronounce the, the sure. Persian given name or whatever. And what ended up happening is everybody who knew me as Oliver called me Ollie. Uh, and everybody who knew me as Ali Reza called me Ali. And it wasn't until my freshman year at Cal when I left high school that I decided this is a kind of opportune moment to decide who I want to be to a whole group of people that have never met me before. Right. And Ali felt right because I was like, well, Oliver doesn't allude to my ethnicity and I'm proud of, you know, to be a Persian American. And mm -hmm. um, so I, I went with Ali, which is uh, not at all original, but it's, <laughs> it's what I got. Okay. And, um, I, I do remember that the decision to switch to Ali from Oliver and on camera, I went by Oliver for all of my teens, most of my early 20s. Wow. Um, wasn't so big an issue until 9-11. And then uh, after 9-11 happened, you know, understandably, there was a lot of like anti, you know, Middle Eastern sentiment out there. I, you know, I get it. I don't, I'm not saying it was right, but that was an awful thing. And it was it was tough to kind of feel that, well, how come I'm not getting called back as much or called in as much? And, yeah. you know, um, yeah. it wasn't unique to me, man. And, and, you know, I obviously persevered, um, but definitely there, there was a moment. I don't, I'm very seldom have I felt any overt direct racism. Yeah. There's been some unsavory tweets here and there, yeah. but, um, you know, I, I'm usually very unsavory people cool. who are sending out tweets. Like For that. sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I look at that and I'm like, how much do you hate yourself? And, mm. You know, getting after me. You don't even mm. know me. Yeah. It, it hurt though, man. When I first like went down the rabbit hole with two plus two, when I was doing poker after dark, I mean, you go back, those archives are still there. There were a lot of people who were not fans of what I was doing. And that's why we're on cards you know, chat. You know? <laughs> yeah. A little bit less vitriol, I would imagine, but uh, yeah. you know, you got to have a thick skin to do what I do. Yeah. So the rejection is that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, Yanko57's next question is, what tips would you give to someone who wanted to try and break into poker broadcasting? It's uh, not 
that many positions uh, out there? That's an, also an insightful question. Look, there are infinitely more people that would seek to be involved in the entertainment industry at large mm. than there are opportunities uh, for those people. And then the vertical of poker is an even more narrow niche of folks. I have long said that I don't need to have every piece of this pie. There's okay. a lot of pie to go around and I am very happy to share, you know, whatever this little thing that we do is with those who dedicate themselves to it. I really the, want pie right now. The talk, <laughs> banana cream no, is, <laughs> is, the right, is the right answer to that question. Um, but no, I remember going back to career day at my high school. This is going back years ago and getting a similar question. And mm. it's one of those things where like, yeah, I understand the importance of trying to tell you that, you know, you roll up your shirt sleeve, son, and you, you put one foot in front of the other and you'll make it happen. But and BJ Nemeth, who we both know and love, I, I don't know what happened to it. I had it pinned at the top of my Twitter um, forever and ever. And I don't know whether or not I, I managed to put it back, but um, super compelling tweet quote that he, he put up. And he said, um, it, uh, it completely freaks me out that the total randomness of chance brought me better places than my best decision making. Wow. Maybe it's a product of humility, but I just think it's so pompous to think that ultimately huh. you have complete control over what's going on out here. I'm not religious, but I do think that there's something inexplicable out there in the universe, a little bit of magic of some sort, you know, that we can't put our finger on. And 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 even if that's total BS, I like it because it helps us commit, kind of make sense of some things, you know, I, that we can't otherwise. And, and it's also like, dude, like just there's some really like random stuff that happens and like, you're going to drive yourself nuts if you think you're going to be able to control everything. And so I, I say this because I'm not sure what the answer to that question is. I'd love to help you and tell you exactly what you need to do. Obviously practice being good at broadcasting, watch some broadcasts and talk about them, play some poker. Those are all basic things that I, this is not profound. Sure. But as far as like how you're going to break in, Let's face it, I happen to be in a 75-150 limit hold'em game with a guy on a boat because my friend won two seats and invited me there, and I had done television before because my friends put me up to going out for a job in high school, and all of that came together in that moment to open the door for me in this particular vertical. Right. So it would be absurd for me to pretend that I know the way to do it. I don't, and I don't think there is any one way. I do think that the beauty of where we are in today's world is that the barriers to entry no longer exists. The big conundrum was always, in order to get gigs, you need representation. In order to get representation, like an agent or a manager, you need to have a resume, a reel, a gig, you know, that you've done. And so it was like, well, how do I solve that catch-22? Mm. Now, you can make your own podcast. You can start your own YouTube channel. You can, if you're a personality and you're a talent and you have something out there, do it. But don't be one of those people who endeavors to do it because you feel like you're instantly supposed to get recognition. You're instantly supposed to get paid handsome sums. Do it because you want to do it and because you love it and recognize that you are not guaranteed success because it's not up to you. There are variables way beyond your control that will determine whether or not it's going to happen. And if you can live with that, then, then do it and be happy with whatever the outcome is. That's what I would say. Wow. I mean, I, I can't just go into this. I, I got to digest that. It's just like, because I mean, yeah. don't you see no, I mean, people are like, I, agree with oh, like, I want to be famous and I want to be rich and I want to do all of that. Like, well, then you're coming at it wrong. You know, it's, I, I agree with every single one, but not, you know, people don't 
speak truthfully like that. There's so we're so guarded. There's so many layers, and you just hammering that out there. Such a it's 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 greatness, you know, with with an amazing you know vocabulary. I'm not it's, like it's I'm just I'm not <laughs> special. It's I'm not special. I I know I have some well, talent. I know I have some gift. It's just true. But I am honest about that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like you're not going to get something to offer the world. Yanko, fifty-seven. You're not going to get a better answer than that ever for that question. So I'm just going to say. Uh, acid burn FX. Thank you very much for Ooh. these questions. Are great. Always the most creative questions. I hope it's spicy. Oh, let's always look for the spicy one. Okay. Ooh, here we go. Hepsid AC 42. <laughs> what would you say right now if you knew that the entire world was actually listening? And that's a big question. Yeah, that's why we saved it for to- third. Third out of black. That's going to be the closest. Well, we got a good one. What did I say if I'm... What is this? There's a... Either a Thoreau or or, um, an Emerson quote with respect to... uh, success and I and I don't know it by heart and I should because it has a lot to do with what I think is what it means to be successful in this world. And I think objectively everybody's kind of looking for the meaning of life and looking to understand, you know, how to be successful, right? Um in, in various different ways. And uh it talks about leaving the world a little bit better, enduring the betrayal of false friends and, and doing so whether by healthy garden patch or redeemed social condition or, you know, a child's smile, this is to have succeeded. And, um, and I feel like it would behoove people to take honest stock, not just in what they sense extrinsically has been foisted upon them to be pursued in life, which let's, none of us really know, like, how did we get here? What are we doing here? Whatever. And to just kind of like be honest and decide, well, what what would it mean to me to to be successful or to have made the most out of this life and to do that and to not get caught up with, I think COVID a little bit kind of sobered us up to like the inconsequential, you know, and being like, dude, it could all be over tomorrow. We could all get wiped out. We're fragile little creatures, man. There could be some disease that we don't end up with a vaccine for, or we're not fortunate enough not to, you know, uh, have underlying conditions and, and, and whatever. And, and it's just, you end up, your number gets called kind of yep. thing. Yep. And so like, just figure out what it is that you want out of this little, you know, trip. As far as I know it, it's a one shot deal. I mean, I hope that there's something on the other side. I don't know, but, mm-hmm. um, and do that, man. Don't mm-hmm. waste time being unhappy. Mm. Figure out what makes you happy and go do it. And I know from a position of privilege where I'm not going to have to worry about what I eat tomorrow, you know, because I've done well for myself. There's a bit of pompousness about being able to say, it's like, hey, buddy, I'd love to think about that. But instead, I got to go to this job that I hate because it's the one that I got. And because, you know, I, I got to make money and I, I don't have, you know, savings and stuff like that. So I'm very sympathetic to that. But you know, just, we don't need a whole lot, man, to, yep. to get by, right? I mean, if you don't want the big house and the fancy car, whatever, you just want some shelter and you just want some love and some companionship or whatever, those things can be found. There's a lot right? of happiness to be gained by yeah. waking up in the morning. 
Yeah. Just yeah. being appreciative of that. And yeah, going, dude, sure. I can see, I can hear, I can speak, I can taste, I can oh, touch. Yeah. Right. Like it gets real really fast yep. if one of those things is taken away from you. Absolutely. And you start to realize what's for real important. So if the whole world's listening, I would just tell them, figure out what it is that make you makes you happy and don't waste time being unhappy and 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 sweat the small stuff and just kind of figure it out. And you know what? I'm talking to the world as much as I, I want it to talk to me, you know, because mm. I don't have it all figured out. I, right. I you know, I got to recalibrate from time to time. So, okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, you'll see hopefully with these other questions, why that was not the closer okay. um, from acid burn effects. Again, this could just be like, kind of like a, uh, you know, instant answer, like from your gut. Okay. If you could live in anyone's head for an hour. Whose head would you choose and why? Um, first name that pops up. Anybody's head. So my first thought is, would I want to live in in somebody who's been like revered, like some sort of saint, right? Who we mm. all look upon collectively and go, what a beautiful human being that is. Mm. The Dalai Lama, for example. Okay. But weirdly, I feel like. And I don't mean for this to come off distastefully. I I, I want to live in the head of like, and, and not like some weird, you know, sadistic or dark desires of mine, but I want to live in the head of like the, the, the evil, right? Like, I, I don't mean to sound distasteful. I don't, he was a horrific human being. But like, imagine if you could live in Hitler's head mm. and understand like, what went wrong here, man? Like what possessed you? to be this heinous a human being. And as such, when I pop out of that head, understand what it's going to take for us to keep others from reaching that from point, reaching that yeah. point wow. in the world, right? Like figuring out how do we get rid of that? Like no more school shooters, you know, no more mass killings. Right. Like let me get into that dude's head. Huh. So I know what we need to do as a society to cut that stuff out, hmm. you know, like, I feel like that's what we should do if we could live in someone's head for an hour, right? right? Figure those people out because we've let those people down, right? Somehow, mm -hmm. some, somewhere, something went wrong. Nobody is born as an infant going like, oh, yeah, school shooter. I can see it all over <laughs> that baby's face. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, of course. Wow. It's like, what did we do wrong? How did we fail that person? And it may not be we, just the parent, right, or whatever. But, like, let's address that because there's some bad stuff going on fascinating know? answer it's also just clues into the way your mind works to have to give an answer like that incredible um and i really do hope that nobody takes that out of context no, right like it's not because it's that'll it's, be it's the lead soundbite you know no, yeah. like, <laughs> I, I mean it's treacherous to take to, to, to put an answer out that like you know in, in today's day and age and they're like oh all Jean wants to be hitler no 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 <laughs> no right what he wants is like for the world to just be a happier, better place. Huh? Sure. Uh, Nata777, yet another name I haven't seen before in 60 episodes. So thank you very much for submitting these questions, Nata. Um, Ali, how do you keep in good physical shape? Nata777 wants to know. I do not keep in good physical shape. If uh, I had to like evidence to the contrary sitting here, right next to me. Listen, I am blessed with what is rapidly eroding metabolism. <laughs> I'm probably 15 pounds heavier than I was pre-COVID. I've never been like heavy or whatever, but I'm not in shape. If I had to run a mile right now, it would be a virtual impossibility. Don't let this falsely spelt looking, you know, physique do it. I, listen, I'm at the drive-thru in these wee hours, especially in a post-COVID world where all the great 24-hour places became late night places. The late night places started closing early. 
I actually went to a Jack in the Box that was closed. First time in my life. Like wow. you're a 24-hour establishment. They can't keep talent, like talent. They can't keep yeah. employees. Talent of right? another variety. I mean, listen, you put together a sourdough jack properly. That is a talent, right? <laughs> Those two pieces of Swiss. Forgive, this podcast is me. not sponsored by Jack in the Box, but intent, nor by yeah. pork producers of America, but those two delightful pieces of bacon. Forgive me. Uh, the, the sour, you know, the perfect amount of butter, a nice crisp on the bun, and then like a mid well, maybe because you really can't trust anything less than that for the burger itself. I mean, that's you're doing God's work in there. We will end off with two questions from Crystals, uh, a wonderful, frequent uh, contributor to the question portion of this podcast, the uh, community question portion. So thank you, Crystals, for submitting these. Uh, just last two, Ali, before we wrap it up. What is the biggest obstacle Crystals right. wants to know that stands in the way of poker growing these days? I think there is still some dark corner of poker where people are conducting themselves unethically. I think the online world is very much replete with that sort of behavior. Um, I'm not saying it's the majority by any stretch, um, but I do think that that is a very toxic aspect of, of the industry. You know, I mean, in any in anything, there's going to be bad people, right? And, mm. and um, there are opportunities there. You know, there have even been here at the World Series times where there have been some some pretty um, pretty harsh allegations against folks. That, you know, sometimes I think they've been proven, and, and then I wonder how much evidence is there. You know how it is; it can be gossipy. There's a bit of a rumor mill or whatever. But well, there's but there's a lot of money out there and, you know, yep. people, when there's a lot of money, people will cheat and lie and steal and, and do things, unfortunately. And I mm. think that, um, stuff like that, especially when you look at what, where it left us with black Friday, I mean, the UB scandal, mm. and that was like, come on, man, really? Like we're just getting to the place where we're getting mainstream sponsorships. We're just getting to the place where we're being legitimized. We've been pulled out of the shadows mm. and, you know, a handful of people couldn't help themselves. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just so selfish. And by the way, these are people that were printing money. You know, you had a golden goose that laid unlimited eggs, a cash cow. That was the UB thing. And then now, you know, you still have allegations of people hand sharing or people using real-time strategy assistance and, you know, things like that. Like, that's always going to cause people to be apprehensive about getting involved. I do think also it's too hard, man. Like the game. Yeah. Become solved. Yeah. Mm. I think that's a humongous threat. This game getting solved and then being nothing but a bunch of people who are just executing against one another is a threat. So mixed games you know? is the answer. That's what you're saying. You know, that's my answer and your answer. <laughs> for sure. Let's let's prevent that from happening. You know what I mean? It's, okay. our, own, it's our own vaccine. Our, <laughs> like, I'm going to take many, many doses of mixed games. Yeah. Uh, the final question from Crystals. Uh, and here, I think we're closing it out on an interesting note because I have no idea what the, I mean, some of them I kind of know maybe what you say, but this one is like, I really want to know that one. Ali, if you didn't get into poker, what would you have gotten into? What would you be doing today? I, I've actually thought about this one, but more so if I weren't, Talent, if I weren't, which is what that's not <laughs> that is the that's official not my term yes, correct. that I told Ali to use. <laughs> no, on the it's, it's um, yeah, I mean, it's what you call people who are, who are in the entertainment industry in my capacity. 
Um, but if I weren't talent, what is it that I would be doing? And the answer that I often come back to, and it's just another iteration of creative expression, is is be a chef. Actually, um, huh. yeah. I that's mean, not I, what I. I mean, I have no idea. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I have a humongous passion for food. I, uh-huh. I think food brings people together, right? I mean, think about the number of cultures that love through a plate. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, and and sure. by the way, this is one of the commonalities in in this ridiculous, you know, the Jewish Muslim thing is is so so silly because of the number of values that the two religions share and it's so absurd that to this day and by the way ali is is, is jewish and i'm muslim in case <laughs> there was any confusion okay. right yes. um i know i mean i'm not religious but my parents both grew up muslim and, and uh and i mean I, I i look at food as just like uh creative expression like you know i, I love to go, I go to the grocery store it's like one of my favorite things in the world is go to the grocery store no. and look at different ingredients and mm-hmm. then Think of like, well, this would go good with this, and we can make this sauce, and then do this as a side, and then plating it. And what's the right plate, and what's the right, you know, colors to go with it, and make sure. it look beautiful, and then, and then deliver that to somebody who I've welcomed into my home as like a, this is the way that I'm gonna love you. You know what I mean? This is to, to go through everything from this morning to now and deliver this. You know, um, and Persian culture is that way. I'm sure you know Jewish culture is yeah, for sure. as well. Um, and yeah, I, I think uh, that would that would likely be where I ended up. That's very sure. cool. Yeah. Oh, very cool. I'm sure you'd get uh, many, many Michelin stars. Oh, I would be going for them for sure. Very cool. I wouldn't have good enough wine list for a three times. <laughs> I don't drink. <laughs> Well, thank you to uh, everyone who sent in questions for Alina Judd. Just yeah, again, a friendly reminder to all of you out there in our Cards Chat community. We'd love to see you submit your questions for our future podcast guests in the dedicated thread on the forum. So please be sure to give us a good review on iTunes and share it with your friends if you like the show. Ali, before we let you go, anything yeah. else you'd like to share with uh, our Cards Chat audience? Um, you know, as I've come to understand it, it's, as you mentioned, uh, a very friendly and, and compassionate and, and considerate group. Uh, you know, listen, not all poker player communities are as uh, <laughs> friendly, as, as friendly, <laughs> as kind uh, as the one that, that's been cultivated there. And so um, obviously appreciate that uh, those folks have a good place to go and kind of, uh, you know, be away from a lot of that negative energy that, that uh, is out there elsewhere. Um, and that I got to be a, a part of it for you know this brief little slice of time. Mm, so, love it. Yeah. Well, thank you uh, very much again, Ali Najad. Thank you all for tuning in once again to another episode of the Cards Chat Podcast. I'm Robbie Straczynski. You can follow me on Twitter at Card Player Life. I wish you all a wonderful day. Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community.